we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the cabin in the woods, I tackle stories of the strange and mysteries from history, always attempting to remain critical, but never cynical. This episode is my interview with Imogen Knox, all about ideas about witchcraft in early modern times. Before we get started with that, I have a few thank yous to people. As you know, you can support the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and a few people have done so recently and i wish to say thank you to them so massive massive thanks firstly to herogram who bought me a whole bunch of coffees and said happy birthday and thanks for being fabulous it was my birthday recently i'm recording this in mid-april it's a fairly nice sunny day here in the forest i'm sitting out uh, on the front of the cabin i have a little porch thing and i'm drinking my drink for the day actually is a tiny little jot of Jameson Black Barrel, which is gorgeous, folks. It's top-notch, 10 out of 10. Not an obscure company, obviously, but they are a hometown brand uh, made right here in County Cork, and I have been to the distillery as well. So even though they're a massive worldwide brand, um, I don't mind putting them out there once in a while, uh, especially when they make something as nice as this. The uh, Black Barrel, I believe it is a whiskey which is matured in, like, charred wooden barrels or something like that. Another lovely uh, comment and drop of coffee was sent in by Peter. And Peter, yeah, Peter gave a great comment. He said, love the pod. Hope you lift a tankard of foaming mead to the great god Cthulhu in the eldritch surroundings of an ancient forest where blasphemous cyclopean hybrids ululate hideously under a gibbous moon. Alternatively, you could go to Starbucks for your dose of cosmic horror. So (laughs) thanks, Peter, for that. Uh, I haven't done... I haven't done much Lovecraftian stuff for a while. Uh, I, do, I am sitting on an episode about weird fiction meister Algernon Blackwood and his story The Wendigo, which will be all about kind of my, my thoughts and feelings about the outdoors, camping, wilderness, uh, feelings of, of isolation and, and loneliness in horror and weird fiction. So yeah, I'm, I'm tipping away at that one in the background. I've always felt for a long time that I have a lot to say about that story and I want to get it just right. So that one is bubbling away somewhere at the back of the cabin there. So what else do I want to say? Oh, I have a recommendation for another podcast. There is a show called Fantastic Fight. Now, this is <laughs> this is extremely niche, but um, if you follow me on the Instagram where I am uh, Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast or on Twitter where I am at Strange Ireland, you will know that I have a fondness for old-fashioned 80s choose-your-own-path books especially the fighting fantasy series that was a British one that had kind of RPG elements where you roll dice and make this, you know, you keep stats and stuff like that. And most of them happen in this kind of pseudo-Tolkien fantasy world. But um, this particular episode that I'm going to recommend of the Fantastic Fight podcast, which is a show where the, uh, a, a fellow with a lovely British intonation uh, reads through the adventure and makes his own decisions and then talks about his thoughts about each one. And there are a lot of shows that do this, but his his um, take on my favorite book, House of Hell, number 10, book number 10, is tremendous. And I have done an episode about House of Hell previously because it's really, really interesting for two reasons. Number one, 
the setting is it's not just your general generic kind of spooky kids book haunted house you know i would have been happy with that as a kid if it was just general haunted house with some you know spooky ghosts in white sheets that would have done me fine but instead it's something much stranger it takes as its theme a very and, and the book is from 1984 it takes keep that in mind it takes a very satanic panic kind of a theme instead with these creepy robed cultists who are, are sacrificing people to you know some sort of satanic being and it's just it's very not suitable for kids and would never ever get made today um, and and that that was always my feeling that they were channeling the sort of satanic panic that was going on even in britain in some places by 1984 obviously it was more largely a, a u.s phenomena though it did happen in other places too i think now on reflection perhaps the influence of Dennis Wheatley was more important than that more contemporaneous uh, satanic panic stuff. The reason being is that the Satanists, the satanic tropes that Steve Jackson, the author, is playing with in this book are far more like, you know, your rich, upper-class, aristocratic, old-fashioned Satanists who live in, a, in an old-fashioned mansion out in the countryside and have, you know, a giant pentagram on the floor of the library he he's channeling much more of that stuff which says to me upon reflection a lot more maybe dennis wheatley than mcmartin preschool trial but i suspect a little bit of both might have gone into it anyway it's a fantastic book if you can get a hold of it mine is signed by steve jackson himself from i think fighting fantasy fest in london a few years ago so flex there anyway this this episode i, I did an episode about it which you should obviously listen to because it's great but this fellow who operates fantastic fight his episode is tremendous because he he plays through the book, does a whole playthrough, and then he gives you his thoughts. And he really, really, really goes into the minutia of why this book is constructed in such a clever way. It is, in fact, a massive puzzle box of a of a, a game book where, like, you know, there are so many different tricks and traps and secret passageways, and the physicality of the house is sketched out in such an unbelievably complex way that you would not think would be possible with a physical pen and paper game book. And it's part of what makes the house feel so oppressive and so difficult. It's kind of like the same feeling I used to get going through the Spencer Mansion in Resident, in the first Resident Evil when I was a kid. And this guy, the the host of this show, uh, Fantastic Fight, really hits on that, and I really enjoyed it. He, um, I can't, can't remember whether he talks about the Chris knife. I think he does because you need that to get through the adventure. And our, as a kid, I knew a Chris knife was a Southeast Asian element of culture, and I was like, why is this? in this house of hell book about satanists and you know what the answer of course is gerald gardner and this gives us another thing that might have been swirling around in old steve jackson's head when he was writing this book gerald gardner of course the guy who would um later kind of create what we now know as uh, wiccan the wiccan religion one of the only if not the only sort of n new neo uh religions to come out of, of the uk in more modern times but he had written a, a monograph on chris knives from his years living and working on a plantation i believe in malaysia so he was definitely a man uh, he, he was one of these people who kind of saw out the last days of the old british empire and living that lifestyle and uh, i think that creeps over into his writing a little bit but yeah, loads of great stuff to talk about in House of Hell. Go back and listen to my old episode and go back and listen to Fantastic Fight as well. Lastly, uh, the late Prince Philip had apparently an interest in UFOs. This is from Metro, who are a bit of a rag. They're like a version of the terrible British Red Tops, but it's one that you get for free on the London Underground. Uh, but I don't find this unbelievable because 
I, I just like these stories because they remind you actually how mainstream UFO belief has been at certain points in history. Certainly in, in the 70s when he was somewhat of a younger man. He, but listen to this, he collected, he didn't just have a, a generic interest, he collected Flying Saucer Review, which was a, a very, very good, actually, um, uh, publication sent out by uh, British UFO groups. And you can get uh, issues of this online, and they are they make for very interesting reading, I will say. They have a higher level of scholarship than you might expect for these kind of amateur organizations. He also had a whole library of books about UFOs, including stuff like um, the, the Halt Memorandum book about Colonel Charles Halt, who was, of course, the American, uh, I think, second-in-command at the Rendlesham base. Well, they're, they're Rendlesham Forest, they were the two bases, obviously. But um, he's still on the scene, I believe. He's still a proponent of the Rendlesham UFO stuff. But yeah, again, re interesting, but not surprising that someone like Philip would have been into this stuff. It shows up again and again in the interests of people quite high up the chain, especially in, in the British uh, system. There were plenty of people in government, uh, including Churchill, uh, who, you know, ordered investigations in, into this stuff, uh, going right back to the late... 1940s. Anyway, that's enough intro. Uh, after the break, you're going to hear my interview or my chat, whatever you want to call it, with uh, the fantastic Imogen Knox, all about early modern witchcraft. I'm Imogen Knox. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Warwick and I'm funded by the M4C, which is part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council. I primarily work on uh, representations of suicide and self-harm in supernatural narratives across early modern Britain. So that's witchcraft, demonic possession, fairies, ghosts, everything like that. Um, I won't talk too much about suicide in this podcast, but you'll probably get a sense of like how I use the supernatural to tap into these kind of ideas. Um, yeah, I've always been interested in witchcraft history, um, so doing a PhD basically is an excuse to carry on. <laughs> You've done some kind of interesting other um, media things recently, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I've recently started a blog in which I'm going to be examining the kind of crossover of early modern supernatural beliefs and then tropes in modern horror, particularly folk horror, so I've got a post up at the moment launched that the other day about a film called the dark and the wicked which came out recently but i've got a lot of ideas in the pipeline for stuff about you know the witch the blood on satan's claw all those all those good things yeah great and yeah i, I enjoyed that first article and i can tell it's going to be a source for it's very new you, there's, there's mm. you're, you're just getting started with that but the first yeah. article is tremendously in-depth and you can really feel the oh, thank you the the knowledge and the 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 context, I suppose, context is what mm. I like because I'm not a historian, so yeah. I love, I love hearing what is, um, you know, where are they pulling these uh, ideas mm -hmm. from? And I've never heard of that film, so I can see it's going to be a source for discovering new horror films. Oh, and I, I notice that you, you like to focus on the goat imagery in the. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah, I've been a long time fan of the witch, um, which I think might even have been how I found um, White Atlantic Wood in the first place. Um, yeah, we did an episode a very long time ago yeah. with, with my brother. We're big mm. fans of Black Phillip here. Yes, <laughs> me too. I, I've, I've considered trying to come up with a, some kind of Black Phillip Halloween costume, but uh, never really, never really. You should. Out. That would be amazing. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about witchcraft. You have uh, some stories in mind to kind of give us an idea about yeah. some of the narratives that were going with, with, with witchcraft. And I'm excited to hear them and have, have your take on them. And um, at the beginning, I want to talk about something. So as a, as a non-historian, there's this idea that people have always, there's, there's a stereotype, isn't there, about witch hunting, mm-hmm. that it was a medieval thing. And yeah. there's one story in Ireland, which is very well known, I don't want to get too derailed with this, but it's the story of, of uh, Alice Keitler. Um, and if you go, she was in Kilkenny City. If you go to Kilkenny today, um, there's all this Alice Keitler-based mm. stuff. There's a, like, there's a, a, I believe a building she owned is now an inn and it's called Keitler's and they have all this kitschy uh-huh. witch stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that was in the early 1300s, which I, I think makes it something of an outlier, like as, as quite an early example of, um, of, of a witch, witch case. Yeah, that is that is extremely early for for witch cases, particularly the sort of witch case that it is, because she is accused of something that almost looks like a Sabbath. It's not quite there yet, but she's accused of kind of consorting with another group of witches and doing all sorts of strange things with body parts in the night and sleeping with, I think she's incubuses that are involved. Um, so yeah, it is very early for a witchcraft case. I mean, generally we see the kind of witch trials like that with that demonic element coming in uh, maybe about a century later. So it is very early. Yeah, it's a really interesting case. Yes, yeah, so, and the, the sort of version of it I was told when I was there, I visited some of the historical mm. exhibits, was that it was very much a sort of like a business or a politics thing where her business rivals, she was high up, she owned a, a company in, in trading and the, basically mm. the merchant princes of Kilkenny City um, wanted to get rid of her and apparently they couldn't do it through the regular courts, so they had to sort of trump up some charges. And she, she had, I think she'd had something like three or four husbands and three of them mm. had, had died in slightly incriminating circumstances. So they tried to get this done through the religious courts, I think. Uh, that was the, the version of the story I was given anyway when I was there. Mm. So by and large, which, which, like the witch phenomena, the, the hunting, the, the trials, like is it largely a later thing um or is that is that a stereotype or what yeah i think the this idea of the witch trials as medieval perhaps comes from the idea that we're not quite sure what the what i would say i work on would be the early modern period but normally when i say that to people they're not quite sure what that is i think people have a conception of it's medieval and then we're in the modern period so what i would say would be the early modern period would be kind of 1450 to some time in the 1700s it gets a bit blurry but it's essentially like from when the printing press comes in um and that is the the big time of the witch trials really it starts to kind of ramp up um yeah in the early 15th century so maybe a bit before the printing press comes out but then that spread of ideas i think really accelerates Hmm. particularly this demonic element that's coming in around the kind of 1420s um, in Switzerland and then the, the kind of Germanic states. Um, so we see it perhaps as a medieval phenomenon because later people in trying to distance themselves from that time that they were not actually very far from, you know, in years, cast it much further back and say, oh, it's this, you know, witch craze, uh, superstitious people of the medieval period, when really it's really not that long ago at all. Is it a bit of post-enlightenment snobbery, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, yeah uh, trying almost... to make themselves as far from it and that they're the good rational people and they couldn't possibly believe in this sort of nonsense and those villagers were yeah <laughs> so just to be extremely broad like you know the the very famous sort of which stories that are very represented mm-hmm. in media anything to do with matthew hopkins which yeah. finder general and obviously the salem massachusetts stuff that is all much later isn't it that is... yeah oh yeah matthew hopkins is in the 1640s and then salem again is is quite late being in the 1690s so and uh, yeah this is another interesting thing about witchcraft is that i think these the cases that are not the typical cases so like the the matthew hopkins kind of witch hunts like salem these ones that blow up hugely and have massive numbers of of people and and victims involved with these you know accusations that kind of get out of control you think you can maybe get out of a situation if you accuse you know two other people and then they have to try and get out the situation and it you know accelerates those are not the norm at all and those are the cases that we remember so that's yeah we used to um in the kind of 19th century say maybe nine million people were killed in the witch hunts which is obviously a huge figure we think that now it's something more like forty thousand. obviously still a very big number but nothing like what we thought um that it was and the majority of those would have been in germany in england probably only about 500 people killed so not these huge yeah there's such folklore isn't there about like post victorian Mm -hmm. times we the the idea of the burning times and all the folk songs about that and a lot of um sort of newer 20th century religions you know have this idea that there were persecutions that were large and organized um so, so you, you say that those ones that are quite well known were not typical. What, what was more typical? What was a more common manifestation of this? Um, I suppose more typical would be you have someone, it's going to tend to be an older woman. That is kind of the stereotype. Um, it's, not, it's not exclusively older women who are accused. Men do get accused, younger women get accused. But let's say there's an older woman living in a village. There have been some witchcraft accusations rumors been flying around for years and years and these don't really come to a head until maybe a a very not well not necessarily quick but say a series of events happens a child dies some livestock are killed after some kind of altercation with this person maybe they go away muttering and then somebody starts to think or maybe it could have been that person who's conducted this harm to me and then all of these older accusations start to surface people think oh well my cart broke after i exchanged some angry words with this woman i actually had some some horses years ago that died after i had some kind of disagreement and so these things kind of build up and then it's in you having several people who are willing to kind of come forward at once who can then maybe bring a a case like that to trial so it tends to be individual witches maybe three four in in the most cases you wouldn't have like i say these cycles of accusations going around and around it would tend to be focused on one particular or a couple of particular individuals who people have had suspicions about for years and years and it's now just kind of coming to a head for whatever reason particularly i think a child dying would be something that would make people really start to think we've got to do something about this Hmm. so that that feels like it's more uh, like bottom up just like ordinary people getting together and then this idea percolates is, is that like mm. was it normally like that or was it more top down with authority figures leading leading the charge or 
Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's quite surprising, actually, to think of it uh, yeah, as this bottom-up approach, because normally, particularly in Scotland, where there were big witch trials going on, it was often the authority figures that were trying to clamp down and actually stop these things from getting out of control. Maybe the ecclesiastical courts were getting a bit um, over-enthusiastic about prosecuting witches, or in their mind they might see it as heretics. So I think that's where some of these things escalate. I think the, the Alice Keitler case, the man who seems to be quite central in that, looks like he had quite an agenda for prosecuting heretics. I think the Bernadette Williams article that you sent to me said that he had been in France with the, with the uh, Franciscans where they'd been prosecuting heretics over there. So it looks like he maybe had some ideas that he wanted to try out or he was potentially looking for something. So yeah, it tends to be where the authorities are enthusiastic, there tends to be some particular people with some particular beliefs that they want to enforce on other people. But generally, yeah, the, the authorities are trying to calm stuff down because you don't want to have villages or towns of people killing each other. It's not really very practical. You don't want all this fear. And I think another really interesting thing is, so James I, who we have as this, we have an idea of him as a big kind of witch hunter king. Obviously he was involved in witch trials in Scotland before he became king of England and he writes demonology right before he comes um, down to become king of England as well. But he actually, in the opening years of his reign in England, is involved in exposing quite a few frauds. So people who are accusing others of witchcraft and he says, hang on a minute, this doesn't look right. And then actually gets people to confess that they just made it up to maybe they wanted to get rid of somebody or there's a family feud um there's a great case with Anne gunter james sharp's done a really interesting book about that where there's an old family family rivalry so what comes out is that the dad has convinced his daughter to pretend that she's being bewitched by another woman so that they can kill her basically because there's this family feud that's yeah. going back decades um whether the, the confession of fraud itself is legitimate or people are backed into a corner in much the same way that people who confess to witchcraft are backed into a corner is another thing. But James is very sceptical of all of these stories going around and quite a few times actually there have been witches who are executed and he kind of turns up too late and says that oh, you shouldn't have done that. Huh. This is not, you know, <laughs> there's something bad going on here and exposes a fraud. So yeah, the government are actually quite um, keen to calm these things down before it goes that far. Yeah, I've read somewhere, it might have been um, Curse Britain, the Waters book. Mm. I can't, I don't want, don't, don't quote me on that, but the, the <laughs> idea that like actually this stuff went on at times and places where there was a, a lack of um, authority, like during the English Civil War, for example, is when, yeah. is when the Matthew Hopkins was, was very active. Yeah, definitely. It's, the, it's that kind of breakdown of of control that allows Matthew Hopkins and John Stern to operate in the way that they do. And one of the things that seems to have brought their kind of reign of witch hunting to an end is the fact that it was getting very expensive for people <laughs> um, as they were going around, you know, cause he charged a fee for every witch that he, yeah. And all of the, um, you know, towns or villages where he went, if you imprison somebody, and I think he did tend to, well, not necessarily, I was going to say he tended to target poorer people, but that's not true because he had people like uh, priests, or not priests, bishops, you know. Clergy. 
Yes, clergy, clergy exactly. That's all. Nice um, term. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so he had yeah preachers that he had that he'd locked up, but the town still has to pay for if you put someone in prison, you've got to feed them, you've got to pay the, the people who are running the jail, and then you've got to pay Matthew Hopkins himself for finding these witches. And then he starts to show up around towns and villages in Essex in rather more fancy clothing than perhaps befits his puritanical <laughs> image that he's trying to present. So that kind of becomes a problem. And, and people start to say, actually, we don't want you to find any more witches because we've not got the <laughs> money for this. Oh, that's it's it's such a, a malleable thing. Like whatever it is that you want done, it's like mm-hmm. this, this idea that you can hang your like if you want to make a bit of money, or you have a rivalry with somebody in town, or you know you're having a family feud. This is a way for you to get something. Yeah. Done. So I I always feel when when I'm looking at you know beliefs, it's it's both it can be both practical, but also you you can be a true believer. So just because something's in yeah. your self interest doesn't necessarily mean you don't believe it you know yeah of course yeah i'm not i wouldn't want to imply that people are you know these kind of machiavellian they're like right other people believe in witchcraft i'm going to use this to (laughs) to convince other people that we should kill this woman who i don't like because it it was completely fundamental to the beliefs of the time you know the the idea of witches is in the bible and a lot of literature around this time so when people are starting to say oh you know maybe these witch trials are going a bit far we don't like this they that can then be accused of being atheists because if you're saying that witchcraft isn't real then you're denying the word of the bible you're Mm. you that can be linked to deny god so this is a kind of thing that happens in the kind of post restoration period so that's the 1660s onwards when some people are starting to say "Mm, we don't know about this this is a bit dodgy maybe we need more evidence maybe there's been some mistakes made here they get fingers pointed at them saying you're an atheist you're you know so it's everybody would and should have believed in the reality of witchcraft it's more this issue of how many are there who is one that's the thing yeah so i mean it it sounds like it it was many different things in different times and different Mm -hmm. places and i'm wary of generalizations but is, is there any change in character like before and after the reformation for example is there a difference in interest or is is that is that a red herring mm. shall we say um i think well the thing that's interesting about the reformation is that there's there's this rise of the idea of the kind of satanic demonic pact sort of witch in europe pre-reformation and then things start to sort of die down a bit i think everyone's so distracted with the reformation and trying to deal with that that witchcraft or witch hunting kind of falls off the agenda for a bit so it's not until the kind of later 1500s when the reformation is sort of done that we then kind of see this turn back to witchcraft so in in that reformation period there is relatively low witch hunting as we would see it. i'm sure there are still accusations um but there's a, a period of time yeah around the reformation laws come in laws come into play but relatively few people are prosecuted under them until quite a lot after the reformation I think probably the the main difference perhaps to point out it's not necessarily a religious thing but when we talk about witch burning that happens because they witches are being prosecuted as heretics so that's perhaps more of a continental sort of thing you know inquisition leading on from that you you would burn a burn someone for heresy 
And so they're, they're focusing on the demonic element of the crime, whereas in England particularly, and then America, as ideas get transported over there, the focus is much more on the, the crime or the harm done by the witchcraft. So that's why witches in England are hanged. Witches in Scotland are burned, but they would tend to have been hanged first and then burned. So you've got kind of a combination of the of the two. So that's it's interesting to see which elements of the of the crime or the, the heretical act people focus on. It perhaps tells us a bit about what their concerns are in those areas. Okay, let's let's specifically talk about this this case um, mm-hmm. to to zoom in on one and just kind of get an idea of what kind of details were involved in something like this. Yeah, yeah. So I've chosen a source for us to look at, which is called the Wonderful and True Relation of the Bewitching of a Young Girl in Ireland, which I thought would be nice for us to talk about, as it's a an Irish case purportedly. Anyway, um, it. <laughs> comes well it was printed in 1699 um and the events that um are described in it are apparently taking place in 1698 so this is post-salem um essentially interesting would salem have been well known at that that early on in europe yeah um we're getting printed accounts coming across from boston quite early on um what i was saying earlier about people being very interested in witchcraft as a way to kind of argue against atheism salem becomes important in that because it's this kind of shocking you know witches and the devil is alive in our world and how can you possibly deny that these things are happening so it becomes a a great piece for for people to use and you know the writings of cotton mather and increase mather they're on top of getting the publications out from boston so these show up in in london and edinburgh fairly soon after the fact yeah so p- potentially like influencing how these stories are told then afterwards plus i can't yeah. increase mather what a name <laughs> i've always yeah. I've always loved that i know they're fantastic names aren't they i love them <laughs> okay so so what, what happens with this uh, the, the wonderful story <laughs> so essentially what happens is there is a nine-year-old girl in county antrim in 1698 and she is at her house and a witch comes begging to the door the girl gives her some bread and some beer and the witch gives her a piece of sorrel in return which i believe is some kind of herb um the girl then puts the sorrel into her mouth and apparently pretty immediately after putting the sorrel into her mouth she falls quite seriously ill um she's in pain and she has convulsions and different doctors come to see her but they're not able to do anything to help um, with her affliction she begins to contort into strange shapes and she vomits up various items which i think are some of the items that she saw that the witch had on her when she came to the door um, and whenever the witch comes near to the house or even looks at the house the girl can tell that this is happening from inside the house and she falls into fits um the witch is killed this is a bit ambiguous as to whether this is members of the community doing this or if this is some kind of judicial process that's happening um but she says the witch says that she can't undo the spell so there's doesn't seem to be much to be done and then this man called daniel higgs who is the person who wrote this source down hears about the case and he decides that he's going to try and come and help because he seems to be some kind of medical man at least educated we don't know much about him but he thinks that he has a a solution to the problem he's read 
in an old book about a an ointment that he can make to potentially cure this girl so he goes to see her he's very convinced by everything that's going on i think some other people are potentially doubtful that this is what's happening he even apparently keeps one of the items that the girl has vomited up to show to other people to say look this is this is real this is really happening um and then he after some various issues trying to get different items for the medicine he goes back and forth to dublin and he's able to make an ointment which apparently cures her and that's the basic story of the source so there's quite a lot going on there <laughs> how does that track with with stories from this period because this is quite late in the game isn't it this is mm -hmm. I, I feel like i've read that salem was like one of the last big maybe, maybe i'm wrong there i mean i mean I, i've read books saying that some of these ideas go right through to the 19th century and later but um in, in terms of like kind of widespread which beliefs in in europe is this towards the tail end or is this after the yeah this is definitely towards the tail end in the in the english speaking world it's quite late i think you have things going on in switzerland for and areas like that for quite a lot longer um but in the you know the kind of uk americas this is quite late you do get this is happening around the same time as quite a big case that happened in scotland with a, a young girl called christian shaw who also vomited items and seem to have quite similar things going on to this. And that becomes quite a big case with maybe 10 to 15 witches involved. And then some different accusations kind of emerge out of that. That was in 1696. So a couple of years before. Um, so yeah, this is quite late in the game, particularly for England, English speaking world. Yeah. Do we know anything about like where this was printed or who might've been reading it or anything like that? Um, we don't know exactly where it was printed. It was collected by a kind of antiquarian or, or man who was interested in collecting these stories for the very purposes of saying, look, witchcraft is still happening, um, who was a Scottish man called George Sinclair. Um, and it was probably published in Scotland, but we don't know. Um, but this area of Ireland has various Scottish links in this period so it seems likely that it was published in edinburgh yeah um, and as for who would be reading it it comes across as kind of a, a cheap print pamphlet so it would have been fairly affordable this is the sort of thing that one person might buy and then you would take it down to the pub essentially and if whoever was the most literate could sort of read it out mm. you might paste it up on the wall and then everybody could kind of have a look at it um it's quite a sort of sharing economy in terms of the literature that people are buying so you would probably, most people would hear this kind of orally, someone else would read it to them. Oh, that's fascinating. A shocking story. So this is like Weekly World News stuff. This is the sensational yeah, absolutely, now, yeah. kind of title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you can see that in the title, you know, the, the wonderful and true relation <laughs> of bewitching of a young girl. It's very kind of oratorial yeah. the way that um, it flows. Folks who, who study folklore uh, will know that there's nothing unusual about um, people chronicling these stories, taking a story and then mm -hmm. changing the location or the date to make it local. The, the Green Children of, of Woolpit um, is, is an English folk story, which has a Spanish counterpart, which is basically mm -hmm. the same story, but uh, relocated and put in a different time. And um, uh, is there something similar behind this story? 
Yes. So there's a, a source that I've found from 1658, which is mostly about two women in Yorkshire who are bewitched, but there's a, a kind of supplementary narrative tacked on the end of this, which is something that often happens. You know, you, you get two or three stories for the, for the price of one. And in that it's, it's very, very similar, this translation of this, what is apparently a, I think it's a German narrative originally that's been translated from the latin into english um and the same cure is used as well i mean i've sent i've sent you both of the sources what what did you think about the the similarities yeah, between the, the two i the think they look quite of the story are similar yeah um, yeah there's there's some aspects that that are changed potentially because of things that would have seemed a bit more problematic at the time i think the the fasting element particularly is a bit toned down in the later Irish source, probably because uh, fasting would have had connotations with religious enthusiasm. So again, it's kind of that atheism or heresy angle. So you didn't necessarily want to say, oh, this girl was fasting completely. She just didn't eat beer or meat for several days. Mm. And that's a bit more sort of believable or acceptable for that time period. Do you find that that was fairly common, that you would come across stories that appear to have been kind of facsimiles of earlier ones? Yeah, and I it is fairly common, but I think that this was probably happening to a much greater degree than we know about, because of the survival of these sources is not very good. You know, hundreds, for example, of, of this one pamphlet might have been published, but we only have this one. So there's so many stories that could potentially have been lost and some things get turned up all the time, you know, in old book bindings, people come across things. There's so much material that's lost. I think we don't know quite how many stories were recycled and where there are are trials that you can cross reference things with. You can say, oh, well, this did happen because there was also a trial where that woman was accused or that, you know, this aspect happened. Um, But yeah. There's a there's a really interesting case of a story of a woman called Margaret Hooper who's possessed by the devil and she had at least three iterations of her story. Um, she starts somewhere in the south of England and then her story's kind of taken to Durham and it's always this story happened, you know, in the past year. She becomes Margaret Cooper at one point, but all of all of the narratives, uh, all of like the narrative elements are the same. I think that that's one where there's a headless bear involved that's sort of appearing and terrorizing her so yeah we see these these stories get kind of as a familiar is it like as a witch's companion or as a demonic yeah or a kind of um yeah demonic manifestation yeah the devil appears in various guises different animals including a, a headless bear <laughs> so is uh, is is it generally good po- policy to presume that the earlier source is is the original and therefore like this story probably did not happen in county antrim um, yeah. somebody wanted to attach a story like this to that location for their own purposes. Yeah, trying to cross-reference this with Irish trial records would not be the easiest thing in the world. So it's possible that, you know, there there are some records out there or there were some records out there where something like this happened. But yeah, it's impossible to to tell completely. But I, I do think that he's kind of recycled this for his own purposes, probably to suit that agenda of, you know, witchcraft is real this is happening if this was published in in scotland or england you could almost phrase ireland as a kind of exotic location where these kind of things are happening much like america you know you're getting mm. these imports of stories in salem oh well there's something happening in in ireland as well 
So let's talk about briefly the nature of like some of the elements of that story. So like mm-hmm. how common are they? It's It's got a lot of the key elements that you would kind of expect to see in a story of bewitchment. Um, bewitchment and possession cases have a lot of crossover in this period and oftentimes it's quite difficult to tell whether somebody is saying i'm being bewitched or i'm being possessed because the witch might uh, the witch might send their familiar spirits but they might also send things that look a lot more like demons to kind of do their bidding for them and the demons might enter into them and even in some cases the witch might be said to enter into the person and possess them so you get a lot of crossover between this witchcraft and, and possession so the symptoms that you get in this case, the, the contortion, the, the vomiting, which I think is something that comes across as really shocking to a modern audience, is something I'm quite interested in. The prophetic knowledge that she has, the, she can tell when the witch is looking at the house. She can also tell when ministers are going to come and she tells her mum off for uh, calling the ministers. She says, you know, this is a waste of time. Why have you done this? Um, and that's also quite interesting in itself because these witchcraft stories we often see children kind of coming to the center of the household they become the center of attention you know normally a child if they spoke out against their parents in that way or rebuked them that would be a massive offense and, and breaking the hierarchy but because they something extraordinary is happening to them they can kind of break the the boundaries in this situation um the fasting element is another kind of common thing sometimes it's that the demon is physically stopping the person from eating but in this it seems to kind of be a choice maybe to Mm. present her as a bit more of a pious individual which again reinforces this fact that she can speak to her social superiors and kind of lecture them which is something we see quite often as well in the vomiting what kind of items are are being ejected Mm. so she vomits pins nails which are specifically nails out of um cartwheels apparently fish shells uh hay straw lengths of knives apparently which is something that the author makes quite a lot of makes quite a big deal of because he says how how can this possibly be happening which is quite interesting because he's kind of preempting the <laughs> questions that you might ask about the source and he, so he's, he kind of presents it as he sat there puzzling, how can this possibly be happening? Because as well, he says that this is happening without any blood coming out of the girl, which is quite surprising if, if you're vomiting knives um, as a nine-year-old child. Um, and then the girl takes his hand and she says, no, I really am vomiting these things. And, and he believes that he, because she's kind of presented herself, or well, not present herself, but she comes across as this very innocent young girl she's demonstrating all these kind of religious behaviors that's a credible explanation when she kind of says no i i know that this is what's happening to me and he says okay well that must be that must be it then well if you're somebody who um is interested in in tracking one supernatural phenomena onto another you know throughout history and the Mm. idea of uh, ports you know in poltergeist cases where there are Mm. manifestations of physical or even even in in like UFO abduction stuff where the, you have the implants, the idea that yeah. you need some physical take back from the other world as proof. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's like I was saying um, before about how he keeps some of the items to show to other people as, as proof that this is really happening. I think that the, the vomiting presents this physical evidence and it's such a dramatic kind of display of the, of the affliction. It's hard to believe regardless of your kind of, position at the time you might think oh a child can contort or 
fall over and that would be fairly easy to fake, which some people do say at the time. But how are you going to fake vomiting up knives? That doesn't seem... Um, but and also it's interesting that you raise that point about um, the, the UFO phenomenon because I think with UFOs and the, the manifestation there becomes a kind of script of what you know a UFO experience looks like what an abduction looks like and you've spoken about that before in your podcasts and that a similar thing happens with with these stories so these would have been circulating in print and these ideas kind of spread much in the same way as you know you th- if you think you have an illness today and you go on you know webmd or whatever and you think oh i have that symptom i have that symptom and you know it might say you have a headache and you'll go oh actually yeah i do have a headache so you start to kind of exhibit these symptoms and it's not that people you know are necessarily faking them but they know if you're bewitched that is what would happen to you or that's what that looks like so in turn you would kind of exhibit those symptoms you would know what the things are that you would kind of be expected to do yeah, and and again, we're we're. I think even regular ma- mainstream medicine is is increasingly realizing the benefit of using the mind body as a as an example mm-hmm. to explain what's going on, and it only shows that we're not that different to, you know, we're not that post enlightenment smug. We're not that different. We still we're still very, um, you know, we're still human, and we're still subject to mm-hmm. uh, the impressions that are around us, and and that's how we just des- we decide we take in information and we decide what's real, but you know it's it's somewhat malleable within our own brains yeah Yeah. and we're not as far from these ideas as we might like to think and then you think about more modern things like say the satanic panic in the accusations that were flying around then you get things like people the children saying oh this person levitated and that gets taken as red you know that that must have happened because of the believe the children thing so therefore that happened so we're really you know and, and people see ghosts and you know, we're not as far from from these ideas as as some people um might like to think that we are let's talk a little bit about the the trials themselves uh, obviously there is mm-hmm. the sort of stereo- stereotypical attitude that this was pre-enlightenment and that the trials must have all been hysterical and it was all you know mad superstition and um but my understanding is, is actually they, they they could be not always but they, they could be especially if they were done by the authorities there were rules to be followed. And as you said, there was mm-hmm. often quite a lot of skepticism brought to bear, maybe not in the way that we would rec- recognize it now, but within, within their worldview, they were, they required certain levels of evidence to be met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Particularly in the, in the later period, the evidence becomes something that is really important. Um, you get quite often tests being employed to check kind of the, the bewitched person is really undergoing the suffering or not necessarily even whether they're genuinely undergoing the suffering, but is witchcraft the cause of it? Because it could be, it could be a natural illness. It could be something else, particularly if you've got young women who are suffering from some kind of affliction, it could be something like the wandering womb. It could be, yeah, there's, there's various other explanations that you could have. So you could conduct various tests, such as you could blindfold the person who is um, claiming that they're bewitched and bring the witch into the room um, to touch them and see if they react. Um, if they're blindfolded, you could prick the witch to see if you can find the, the insensible spot where the devil has marked them. Another mark of that would be if you prick them and then blood doesn't come out, then that's the, the devil's mark. Um, yeah, there's various ways that you can kind of test 
uh, to see if witchcraft is involved. Whether, like you say, whether we would think that this is, um, you know, <laughs> uh, has much merit now, I think is a different thing. But sure. But I, I, I just I think it's important to emphasize it wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily a big hysterical. Yeah, know, they they didn't take. You know, it wasn't just a, a fact of someone says someone's a witch and therefore we all believe that there's a witch um the the last witch trial well one of the last witch trials that happens in england is in 1712 and the the witch um jane wenham was convicted but then she was reprieved afterwards because there was a kind of local community effort to get her exonerated and this is something that can come into play quite a lot if you accuse somebody who is actually quite well liked or who is seen as uh, a good religious person then it, those accusations are probably not going to stick and that's one of the the big problems of what happens at Salem is that people who are considered kind of godly members of the community begin to be accused and convicted and that's when it kind of gets people from the outside say this is getting out of control now hmm. cool what about um like our ideas about this later on like what, what what kind of media is shapes or what kind of writers what kind of um interpretations have kind of shaped what we you know the popular ideas about about the the witch trials mm, yeah so like i was saying um early on when i was talking about this kind of idea of, of medieval superstitious people the the reaction kind of immediately after the period of the witch trials and when the the, the laws around witchcraft um are taken away so in England it's well the British Isles it's 1736 the witchcraft act is repealed so at that point you can't actually be a witch anymore the only thing that you can be prosecuted for is for pretending to be a witch so that's like um divination doing those more kind of what we might see later on as spiritualist kind of things so from mm. that period onwards people start to reject this earlier period as something that is completely ridiculous you know these people had crazy ideas, they had no rationality at all. Um, so for quite a few years afterwards, yeah, there's this complete rejection of everything that was happening. These people are complete, you know, lunatics. Um, so so the law that's on the books is basically like, it's basically a statement that the government doesn't believe this stuff is real, mm -hmm. but it's still on the books so as to stop hoaxers and frauds. Is that, is that the meaning behind it? Yeah, essentially. And of course, you know, the, the belief doesn't kind of disappear overnight with, with the introduction of this law. These ideas still do carry on. But I think the, the people who see themselves as enlightened and, uh, the, you know, the new men of, the, of this modern period are looking down on these people who, you know, only a few years before believed and, and well, and still continue to believe uh, in witchcraft. A bit later on from that kind of 19th century, you get a lot more of a romantic view. This kind of comes in with Gothic writing and uh, Margaret Murray, particularly, who I know you've spoken about. Yeah, I'm fascinated by her. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just, I like Victorian stuff and I like, I, mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with the Victorians romanticization of earlier periods and like just how much, I'm increasingly realizing how much our sort of stereotypical ideas about stuff from history is, is very much filtered through them whether it's the Celts or the Greeks mm -hmm. or the witch trials or anything it's like if the you know the Victorians uh, had such a powerful shaping I think of of what we know so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated by you know people like Leland and um, 
And I, I see Margaret Murray as kind of a late era Victorianist. I mean, she she trained under yeah. Flinders Petrie. She was the last of that sort of era, I suppose. So do, 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 do you have any thoughts about her work on this or the... the, the rem- <laughs> yeah, Margaret Murray is... Oh, she, she's an absolutely fascinating figure. I mean, it's difficult for me to talk about her without saying that her ideas, you know, have been completely thrown out, but they are incredibly influential. These ideas that, that, you know, it was, it was a a real kind of in inverted commas thing. And there there was something that was really going on behind it and the the Christian church persecuting it. It's such a pervasive idea. Um, And it's interesting. I'm not sure whether you said this in your episode or not, but the fact that her ideas are something that's kind of taken up later on by feminist history, despite the fact that her conception of of the kind of witch cult has a has a male deity at the head it's a really interesting kind of flip of her ideas how that got utilized later on but i think i don't know if you know about someone who was kind of near contemporary to her montague summers yeah that's yeah, tell me about yeah. montague summers yeah so montague summers is a really interesting figure as well and i think he acts as a kind of interesting almost mirror to Margaret Murray, because on the one side, you've got Margaret Murray saying, yes, the witches were real, but not in the way that we think they are. They actually were, you know, a benevolent fertility cult, and it was the evil church trying to demonise them and, and kill them off when really they had the, the legitimacy of all of, all of these years of, of worship. Um, Montague Summers, on the other hand, also thinks that witchcraft is real, but for him they are the real manifestation of a satanic cult and they were a serious threat to the establishment and therefore it was completely correct that all of these witches were killed. And for, for Margaret Murray, it's kind of these people are the victims of a, of a hunt against them. So yeah, Montague Summers, if anybody doesn't know anything about him, I would definitely advise that you google him and have a look at a picture of him because i think, I think that I spoke you a little, might have spoken a little bit about him uh, i did i've done two dennis wheatley episodes one on my mm. show and one on um Aoife's show over at censored and i think i mentioned he, he was basically a contemporary i won't call him a friend but he was also a contemporary mm. of dennis wheatley and i think what okay. talking about helped feed into so dennis wheatley met him and, and went for dinner with him and famously ah. didn't like him very much he didn't like yeah. any occult people because he said they tended not to have any money and he was very, <laughs> he was very class conscious and very, uh, <laughs> very money conscious. So he said, um, I think he took some of the ideas about the, the, the occult being real and, you know, the mm-hmm. evil witch cult and they're still around and, you know, people are doing these satanic rites in, you know, big country mansions. All that stuff shows up in, in Wheatley's work and he yeah. himself popularized it afterwards. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because the the devil rides out in the, in the film version anyway. I'm thinking that's quite an interesting combination of almost Margaret Murray and Montague Summers in that you've got that it's a real cult. They're really trying to do harm to people, but then they've got that kind of dianic hmm. um, goat man at the, at the front of it. Well, that's quite an interesting sort of marriage of those two ideas. The goat of Mendes. Yes, <laughs> Chris, the Chris goat Mendes, of Mendes, of course. Yeah, so I, I enjoy I enjoy that all of that stuff, and I th- I think you can draw those direct connections between that sort of occult scare of the twenties and thirties and 
the, the writing mm-hmm. of people like like Wheatley, the direct line from the likes of Murray and, and, and Summers. And then I'm, I'm doubly fascinated by the fact that she comes up with this idea, you know, she, she makes it up effectively. And then, or at least she, there, there were precedents, but she, she's a big proponent of it, but it's effectively mm-hmm. fake. And then sure enough, somebody comes along and makes it real. Yeah. In the fifties. And that's yeah, Gerald Gardner. Yeah, she did. She very much kind of manifested it. If you're looking at it from that point of view. Yeah. Her use of the source material is less than um <laughs> what's the word <laughs> her book is her book is very hard to read it's basically loads of material taken verbatim from the witch trials mm-hmm. and just g- given out without context she takes it all at face value without you know explaining you know whether the person had been put under pressure or not or whether mm-hmm. there was torture involved or you know what, what was the social context for somebody saying mm-hmm. these things it, it she just says no they saw the devil appear to them as a black shape with horns therefore you know this must have happened in some in some physical mm. way yeah but then at the same time it isn't really the devil no it's something else that's going on it's a guy yeah, with so a it's, fake phallus <laughs> yeah it's the way that she takes some things completely as yeah. red and then other things are a, a symbol for something else is problematic yeah right uh, do you have a favorite which media like do you have favorite films or uh, books or anything that uh, kind of gets you got you excited or um i do love i do love the witch i have to say um we're talking about black philip earlier and yeah <laughs> the, the imagery of the witch is fantastic and i think the way th- what really excited me about the witch is the way that it captures that kind of protestant mindset i don't think i've ever seen that done so well in film because that can be something that's quite hard to explain to to people when i'm so immersed in this in this early modern period in this early modern world view i think that the kind of you know protestant uh, predestination or free will and and doom and the end times is something that can be quite difficult to articulate to other people so i think the mood that the witch captured was really good so that's that's got to be an old favorite of mine and i've watched that repeatedly while I was writing my undergraduate dissertation, which was on bewitched children. So you can see that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You've ca- you're absolutely right. I mean, that that's what makes that film special, isn't it? And what, what a difficult thing, what a difficult thing to try and convey and what a hard sell to an audience, you know, for an audience yeah. that has no attention span that is used to Marvel movies. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that if that's your thing, but like for, for them to go and <laughs> try and capture it such an obscure Five and I think we might have said this in our episode about the witch, but my brother who studies uh, that that period, um, mm. the, the work of Jonathan Swift, and he's mired in that sort of world, that sort of Protestant worldview of the 1600s, He said, um, "You never see it in a film. You never even see religion taken seriously in a film. It's yeah. always presumed that it's bunk, and that the people who are claiming to believe in it are are somehow faking it." And he said, "This film takes their religion." as utterly real or at least their belief in it is utterly sincere and that's incredibly rare in film yeah i'm i'm hoping that kind of folk horror and things like that are making a bit of a resurgence that's my favorite kind of genre you know a field in england as well not so much witchcraft but there's a bit of kind of high magic involved in that with the the kind of astrology um and divining practices that are going on so i'm hoping that these things are maybe going to come across a bit more in film in coming years Brilliant. Okay. And to wrap up uh, Imogen, where can people find your work online or what cool or creative or academic things would you like to point people towards? 
Yeah, probably the best place to find me is on Twitter. I am Imogen underscore Knox, and you can kind of find all of my other links through there. But the main thing that I'm doing at the moment is my new blog, which we spoke about a bit, which is called Terrible Imaginations. Um, you should be able to find that through Google, but you can find it through my Twitter as well. Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely. Check that one out. Uh, really, really great writing on uh, horror films, folk horror films, I, I believe is going to be a theme going forward. Yeah. And you have an amazing banner or logo. It's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I had that commissioned from a friend of a friend. It's great. Fantastic. Imogen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ken. It's been great. And that is it for this episode, folks. Thank you for joining us again here at The Cabin. As always, reach out, get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, where we are a Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. <laughs>